Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. While the influence of the United States declines, China's place in the world seems to be rising. The Chinese economy is still nowhere near as powerful as the US, but it's competing voraciously for international markets, investment and political influence. With world capitalism slowing down, international tensions over profit and power are escalating. The trade wars between these two largest powers could well break out again. But is a new Cold War, or even direct military conflict, also a possibility? And what exactly is the Chinese regime? Its dictatorial government claims the country is socialist. So why are there billionaires? And why do so many workers suffer poverty pay and appalling conditions? External conflicts with competing nation-states, internal conflicts with Hong Kong and oppressed national groups, and trillions of dollars of loans and capitalist investments in smaller countries around the globe. This episode of Socialism looks at national and international turmoil and contradictions, China's new role. We're here today with Claire Doyle from the International Secretariat of the Committee for a Workers' International. Hello, Claire. Hello. And we're going to be discussing the rivalry between the world's two greatest powers at the moment, the United States and the People's Republic of China, so-called. Trump has made attacks on China. China has retaliated. There's been growing tensions for a long time. And we're going to look at how this conflict impacts on world relations and also particularly at China's increasing role in world relations in this podcast. If you want to hear a little bit more about the US and what is going on there, I'd recommend that you listen as well to our previous podcast on that matter. That's episode 66, US Imperialism in Decline, which I think will go alongside this podcast very well. But perhaps we should start by asking Claire, why is it that Trump has renewed his verbal attacks and trade attacks on China? Well, I think Trump is faced with a very difficult situation, having at first poo-pooed the seriousness of the coronavirus epidemic and then blamed China more or less for unleashing it on the world to sort of divert attention from the mistakes that he was making. And now he faces catastrophic collapse in his domestic economy, mass unemployment, you know, hundreds of thousands signing on each day for unemployment benefit. I'm not sure if they get it, but, you know, it's a devastating collapse in the economy. And all economies around the world are moving to try to protect themselves, really, their own economies and the class rule within each country. So he's lashed out. He's also facing election this year and the opinion polls were showing him going down a bit. With these recent attacks on China, they've gone up a little bit, but it's still not over 50%. So he's in trouble. So there's renewed talk in this context of a trade war, of the US imposing tariffs, charges on imports coming to the US from China and China retaliating and that escalating. We've already seen some of that in recent years. But there's even talk from some capitalist commentators now of a complete decoupling 
of these two massive economies. Perhaps could you explain what that means and is that even possible? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion about that. And actually there's an article in today's Financial Times by Martin Wolf, who is a respected economics commentator, and the headline is China, the US and the threat to globalization. I mean, he's putting it in terms of a situation developing as it was before the First World War. Very hostile competition, if you like, for markets and trade and a rise of nationalism. But until now, really, China has been very, very involved with the US economy as it has grown and grown and grown phenomenally, faster than other economies around the world. Until February 2019, I have a quote here, China was the largest trade partner of the United States and remains its biggest source of imports. It's now one of the US's major suppliers of advanced technology, products and global supply chains involving China and the US are complex. Moreover, China is the largest holder of US Treasury securities, so I should say they were pretty entwined. <laughs> but whether they can separate is a very important question. You see, the process of intertwining really developed over the periods of growth. It was checked at the time of the 2007-2008 crisis. China, already involved in the sort of world capitalist economy, was also affected. But they threw a huge amount, $500 billion, I think, dollars worth of stimulus package into the Chinese economy. But every economy, including the Chinese, has been struggling over the past 10 years to overcome that crisis. And most have not regained the position that they had before that. And it has already led to the tariff walls going up and less and less trade between the big economies. In fact, for the past couple of years, last year and the year before, a trade war was developing between the US and China. There was a sort of truce. <laughs> a truce was signed in January, actually, when relations between Trump and Xi Jinping were reasonable before they really deteriorated. So a truce was signed, but most commentators think that that is going to break down and you know the trade war will be back on. Because what Trump said to Fox News was, and I quote, we could cut off the whole relationship. And there's a lot of talk about a trade war and decoupling, and it's probably the most important discussion at the present time. Decoupling is maybe a trendy word for a change in direction of trade relations on a world scale. But the trade relations and the establishment of markets is built up over a long period of time. And obviously, capitalist countries, capitalist firms seek the best markets, but also the cheapest places for production. So, in some senses, there has been a change, and production is cheaper in some South Asian countries than in China, actually, at present time. But I think the main question in relation to decoupling is whether the U.S. can actually decouple its economy, get its economy out of the hands of the Chinese. The process that was developing in the recent period, when it was clear that the problems that arose from the 2007-2008 crisis had not been overcome, 
that there was a development of protectionism, which meant walls going up for trade, and it meant really withdrawing the supply of goods to other economies, and also trying to produce more goods within the home country to take up the slack of unemployment, poverty in those countries, because, for example, Trump was elected partly on the basis that there was a rust belt of traditional industries which were declining, and particularly white workers obviously wanted jobs. They wanted to reverse that process, and putting tariffs on other goods coming into the U.S. would mean, it's supposed to mean, an increase in production. Of course, there's the other side of it, because it means an increase in cost of the goods which workers have to buy. So generally, if there is a decoupling and a decrease in trade between countries, if you think about it, the cost of living is going to be a lot higher. The cost of goods in the shops are going to be a lot higher for ordinary working people, which is also going to make them angry. If you think about the cheap goods that come from China at the present time, even clothing and all sorts of consumer goods, if they're blocked off and there are import controls and so on, then the prices are going to go up and it's going to make life harder for workers. It may protect some jobs, it may provide some jobs, but it's not going to solve the problems. You know, only socialism will solve these problems, getting rid of capitalism. So... The situation where the economies are coupled is that, to give an example, rare metals might be mined in China, then sold to the United States to make semiconductors, and then those semiconductors might be sold back to China as components for China to build iPhones, which are then sold to consumers in the United States. And there's that back and forth in the supply line across the borders. And decoupling is obviously, therefore, a very complicated thing to do, although a little bit of it has taken place in terms of the moving of production contracts and supply chains to countries more aligned with their own sphere of influence. Some of that has happened. And you've also seen an 80 to 90% drop in direct investments from the US into China and from China into the US. Yeah, that had been happening over the last couple of years, actually. It had been dropping even before this crisis. But I think it would be difficult to manage without those rare earths, I think they're called, which are very specific to certain parts of the world and actually to China. I don't think it would be total uncoupling, but enough to cause a general depression in the world economy, actually. So this trade war, you remark that the economies became intertwined during the period of growth. So that was in the 90s and 2000s in particular, you're talking about is it when China started to really develop its productive capacity and how much it was able to trade with the rest of the world. Now, China calls itself a socialist country, but a lot of people would look at the Chinese system and say it seems to have a lot of features which look quite a lot like capitalism. Now, the Committee for Workers International talks about a special kind of capitalism in China. Why is that? Well, because... For a long time, after the revolution of 1949, which was headed by Mao and the peasant army, when imperialism really sort of retreated from China altogether, and a worker state was established. I mean, it's called a worker state, but it's mostly in the hands of a bureaucracy based on the majority of the population, who were peasants, and actually antagonistic towards the workers, didn't want the workers to have any control in this, but this was a totally state-owned and bureaucratically planned economy. 
For a matter of decades, there were zigzags in the policy because there wasn't control from below, but it called itself socialist. We wouldn't call it socialist because there wasn't democratic workers' control over the planned economy, state-owned planned economy. But in the name of the party, the ruling party is communist party, but it never was like uh, the early days in Russia when the workers had taken over through the Bolshevik Revolution and had you know, taken over industry and were running it uh, along the lines of workers' control as best they could. You know, being isolated, well, that's another story. They couldn't develop. But in China, they still pay lip service to Mao. And Xi Jinping refers to his socialist ideology, his socialist teachings. And yet he's surrounded by billionaires. I mean, in the party, the ruling party, there are hundreds of billionaires now, you know, as rich as some of the richest billionaires in the world. And in the ruling layers of the party, there are 100 billionaires. And Xi Jinping is very rich himself. There was a transition between the totally state-owned planned economy and what there is now. And that was a period where the Committee for Workers International had a lot of discussion about how do you characterise it. And we called it a hybrid because it was part state-owned and planned and part capitalist, you know, with private enterprise. So it was something sort of in between the two. Now it's 60% private ownership. The major decisions are made along the lines of, you know, market policies, but the state can step in big time when there's an emergency, like massive stimulus packages or huge debt, the debt in China, and all the capitalist economies are worrying about how much they're going into debt because of this virus crisis. But in China, the debt is already 300% of GDP. Other economies are worrying about 130% of GDP. So it is a very special kind of capitalism. We said, you know, a kind of state capitalism, and the state still plays a role. But it's a very strange animal, but it's in the capitalist world and it's competing like mad in the same way that all capitalist economies do. So it makes decisions, as you say, based on the market. It does involve a good amount of exploitation of workers. There are billionaires in there. But the special characteristics in particular are that whereas most capitalist countries, the state prefers to allow the capitalists to make most decisions, the bureaucracy taken over from Maoism is making most of the decisions for the capitalists in China. Is that fair to say? Well, I don't think it's making all the sort of day-to-day decisions that the various companies make and the various capitalists in China make, but they can step in either to punish, you know, to have a massive corruption campaign to get rid of some people who are a bit awkward and not doing what the state is asking them to do or making themselves too rich... And they can also step in with very big projects, like the stimulus packages, where they built a massive railway scheme, I think the biggest and most expensive in the world, to, it's a kind of workfare system, it was to employ people and develop the economy when there was a big threat of recession. And they can do things, like because they don't have to answer in elections, they're not subject to workers' control or even, you know, a sort of feeble form of parliamentary control and elections and they have a huge army and a terror sort of state machine 
where they can suppress opposition. When they need something done, they can mobilize not just a massive army of military people, but a massive army of labor, as they did do once they'd admitted that there was this horrific pandemic killing people in Wuhan, in Hubei. They introduced, I mean, I'm always calling it a clampdown. It's like a clampdown. It is a clampdown, especially in China. It's a lockdown, but it's a clampdown. And they mobilized millions of people to move into the province to help with building hospitals, with carrying out all the necessary measures to combat this virus and to try and contain it within that very, very large central province of Hubei, and particularly within Wuhan, which has 11 million population. So I suppose the question would be that if China, if it's running a capitalist system, even with these strong elements of state control, which are well over and above even the massive intervention taking place in many other capitalist countries at the moment, all of those other capitalist countries, they run a mile from terms like socialist and communist because they're afraid of what those ideas would inspire in the general population in terms of the possibility of fighting for a different system. So why is it, if China is capitalist, that the ruling party calls itself communist? Well, I think it's to hold on to the record of the past, you know, the tremendous achievements of the past, and to cover up the reality of what's really happening now, and to give people, just the ordinary people, the mass of the population, 1.3 billion in the population, the idea that the government is working on their behalf, you know, in the name of the working class, in the name of the working people, and to change the name, I don't know what they would change it to, could be dangerous and could set off a lot of questioning and maybe even revolt. At the moment, there should be questioning and revolt about how come this so-called communist government is behaving like any other capitalist power and exploiting the labour of the masses, making them work harder and faster for low wages. And there have been some revolts you know, along the lines of strikes and protests. They're viciously suppressed. But I could tell you one example, which I've actually quoted in an article I've recently written, which is about people who are young communists who've joined the Young Communist Party. It must be a massive organisation. It's like kind of Boy Scouts or something. But they've been reading Marx and Engels, and they thought... Really, we should be fighting for the rights of workers to have a decent income, you know, and a proper share in the economy. And they've been trying to help to organise strikes and they've actually got into trouble for it. Whether that's happening on a small scale or a larger scale, it's difficult to know because of the mass censorship in the press and the media in China. So, look, this is a really complicated situation in China. You've mentioned that at the time of the Chinese Revolution... The regime was based on the peasantry and to an extent was hostile, in fact, to the workers. You've also pointed out that over time, the bureaucracy has introduced capitalist relations, as you say, exploiting the mass of the population at the moment. Wages go down, but working hours go up. So the benefit of working harder is not seen by the majority of the population in that sense. And yet China, the regime would see itself as a worker state. There are capitalists there now, billionaires, hundreds, like you say, in China. 
but at the same time, the state has a massive degree of control over them, much more than in many other capitalist countries. Who actually runs the government in China? Ah, well, (laughs) at the moment, there's a congress taking place, the People's National Congress, which is thousands of so-called delegates assembled in Beijing just to rubber stamp, as all the press call it, rubber stamping, just to approve what's already been proposed and agreed by the sort of Politburo. They still use these terms, Politburo and the leadership of the Communist Party. But, you know, they don't have any control over the situation. They will approve the stimulus package, the policy towards Hong Kong, which you might be asking me about later. At the top, Xi Jinping actually passed a sort of edict a few years ago saying that he was in his job for life, you know, he's like supreme leader. He's actually the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and chair of the Central Military Commission. He is the president. He's pretty all-powerful. It's difficult to see if there's any way that he could be removed without some kind of violent intervention, and that's not on the cards at the moment. Because previously there was a degree of power sharing within the bureaucracy, at least, wasn't there? What, you mean with different committees? Yeah. I'm sure they've got plenty of committees still who uh, sit and talk and make some recommendations, but it all fits in with the plan from the top, you know, and that has to be adjusted, obviously, with the different, even trading arrangements and investment arrangements and the wages policies, uh, employment policies, because actually they've got quite a high level of unemployment at the moment because of this crisis. And they obviously have to discuss all these things. But I think you asked me sort of where the buck stops and it's with one person. (laughs) Now, it's dictatorial bureaucracy from the earlier Maoist period has increasingly introduced capitalist relations of production, exploitation of workers, you know, presence of billionaires, foreign capital coming in, exporting goods for profit, making loans, this kind of thing. The big example previously of a communist country, so-called, going over to capitalism was the former Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1990s. What's the difference between the two processes there? Well, that's a very good question because we think, and the Committee for Workers International, the Comrades of the Socialist Party have discussed this over the years, but we think that the leadership of the so-called Communist Party in China, you know, however undemocratic, the leadership were scared when they saw what happened in the Soviet Union at the time of the attempted military coup In 1991, in August of 1991, when I was actually living in the country, and I remember it well. But after that, there was a very sudden collapse. Once that coup was defeated and Boris Yeltsin came to the fore, and he was totally pro-market, pro-so-called democracy, although he ended up being a bit of a dictator himself. But once that process started, they went for what was called a fast-track introduction of capitalism, which was ruinous. It was not only ruinous to the economy, which collapsed by 50% in a matter of a a year or two, really, when the Soviet Union was breaking up. But also the Communist Party was outlawed immediately after that coup. 
So all those sort of communist leaders were persona non grata and didn't have their tentacles in the state machine through which they would draw their wealth and power and so on. So they were smashed, really, to put it crudely. And the bureaucracy based in Beijing, they had crushed a movement against them in the horrific events of Tiananmen Square in 1989, but they weren't sure that they could hold control if they said, yes, well, we'll go to the market as well. So they wanted to hold the lid on the process and just do it very slowly and transform themselves into capitalists and very rich people without having this explosion and losing their power, I mean, losing their party. Partly that's why they did keep the name of the Communist Party, to pretend that it wasn't a major change, but it was a very major change. And it's, well, to go into the theory of it, you know, that Trotsky had predicted with any worker's state, whether it was a democratically controlled worker's state that Russia was in the early stages, or a bureaucratically controlled state as it was in China, that it can go one of two ways. Either the workers, if they feel strong enough and they're well enough organised and they understand what needs to be done, they can challenge for power and carry through a political revolution and take over the running of society under democratic workers' control. You know, that would be the most positive, the most tremendous achievement. But it didn't happen in the Soviet Union. All opposition had been crushed. Workers were pessimistic about the teachings of Lenin about workers' control and didn't know anything about Trotsky because he'd been suppressed. And the process went rapidly in the direction of the bureaucracy. The other alternative that Trotsky had posed was the bureaucracy actually carrying through the social counter-revolution and becoming the capitalist class which is what they did in the Soviet Union and in Russia. It was party functionaries, the ones who didn't get sort of expelled and demoted, but they were in a strong position, who became oligarchs, really, and were running the government. But in China, they wanted to prevent either of these kind of revolutions and just slowly, slowly go towards the market, which is what they've done. And they're still in control. But how long they can stay there is a big question. So when you talk about social revolution and counter-revolution, that's referring to what is the ruling class in society? Is it the capitalists or is it the workers presiding over a society which is heading away from any kind of class distinction, away from exploitation? And when you talk about a political revolution, that's within a given social system, capitalism or a system based on the workers, for example, changing what we would call the political superstructure. So in the case of Stalinism, going from a bureaucratically planned economy to a democratically planned economy. And the explosive changes in the Soviet Union as it disintegrated were a warning for the Chinese bureaucracy. And they've been trying to square the circle and maintain the bureaucracy which based itself on improving the living conditions of the masses, whilst also introducing capitalist relations to allow them to enrich themselves. But of course, these in the long run these make the conditions of the masses, at least most of the masses, quite a lot worse. That's basically it. They carried through the social counter-revolution. A political revolution is what was necessary from below on the part of the working class, you know, taking over the state-owned planned economy. So given all this about China, how would you characterise its relations with other economies around the globe? Uh, well, it's both competitive and exploitative. I mean, it's like any capitalist country now, a capitalist economy. In Europe, it's extremely 
competitive. There was an analysis made by Bloomberg last year that said that China now owned or had a stake in, this is in Europe, four airports, six maritime ports and 13 professional soccer teams in Europe. And it estimated there'd been 45% more investment activity in 30 European countries from China than from the US since 2008. So it's competing in Europe and the European Union have complained about the encroachment of these they say state-owned companies and look, you know, in Britain, the Tories are worried about the Huawei, I can't pronounce that probably, but coming in, you know, sort of taking over communications in Britain, they're backtracking on that, which is part of the winding down and the decoupling. But they're also competing in the probably nearest large neighbour, which is Australia, and they've started trade spat with Australia, in fact, they accused Canberra because they called for an inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus outbreak, that this has led to a sort of blame game. And uh, they've said that Canberra, you know, the government in Australia is panda bashing. <laughs> and there have been all sorts of insults that are in the press today. There's another one here which says the Canberra, this is the Beijing says about Canberra, that it's a giant kangaroo that serves as a dog of the US. I mean, like, there's some truth in it, but the language is quite... Well, yeah, but this language... I mean, actually, China accounts for a quarter of Australia's two-way trade, which is worth $156 billion. So it's a very important trading partner. But there is talk now about tariffs and a trade war between them. So that's one of the aspects of the kind of... The wheel turning in the other direction, it's insults, but it's also big trade agreements which are being now torn up. Yeah, so you've talked a bit about Europe and Australia. Is there a different relationship with the neo-colonial parts of the world, Latin America, Africa? Well, yes, you see, you call them neo-colonial because they were the colonies of the big European and United States capitalist countries. But really, Chinese investment is taking over from U.S. investment, even in the backyard of the United States. For example, China is now the top trading partner of Brazil, Chile, Peru and Uruguay. <laughs> the governments of Mexico, Argentina and Brazil have expressed not only gratitude for China's aid, but an eagerness to increase trade agreements covering the export of beef, soya beans and other foodstuffs. And to quote the New York Times, since 2017, 19 nations in the region, that's in South America, Latin America, have signed on to the Chinese government's Belt and Road Initiative. It's a multi-billion dollar network of investment and infrastructure projects. Now that project, the Belt and Road, which is called now Initiative, is worth a trillion dollars which is, you know, massive. And it's going right across from Asia, Southern Asia, through Africa to Latin America as well, and through Turkey and sort of bits of it into Europe. So it's a massive project, which is really a very special form of imperialism. If we talk about a very special form of capitalism in China, this is a very special form of imperialism. But just like all imperialisms, the massive money that they put in and the loans that they've set up, which is in the order of 350 billion that China has lent to various countries, a lot of them high-risk debtors, 
they're now saying, well, it looks as if these countries are getting into some difficulties. We might have to consider a delay in their repaying us, but we can't let them off these debts, which is exactly what the IMF and the World Bank are saying to the small, so-called developing countries, which in some cases are going backwards. You see, places like Sri Lanka, Pakistan have got big debts, and it's big for them, but it's tiny in comparison with the billions of dollars that are owned by a few individuals in the capitalist world. But they're taking the same attitude. Well, we can have a delay in repayment, but we can't write off the debts. And we, in the Committee for Workers International and the Socialist Party, we say all those debts should be cancelled. But, you know, you're coming up against these capitalist-dominated World Bank and IMF or the Chinese-dominated Belt and Road project, and it's a battle. Well, speaking of a battle, there's been talk of a new Cold War, hasn't there? So you talk (laughs) about imperialism, and I suppose just to explain briefly to listeners, when Marxists talk about imperialism, we're talking particularly about capitalist countries as well as exploiting, of course, the working class and the mass of the population within their borders, using their profits to exploit other countries, to extract profits out of other weaker economies, and in fact become loan sharks on a kind of world scale. The Marshall Plan has been compared to China's Belt and Road Initiative, and the Marshall Plan, of course, was a similar sort of scheme, which was applied particularly to Europe but to other parts of the world by the United States in the wake of the Second World War. Now, there are very important differences between the two, not least that after the Second World War, the world was poised to go into a boom, whereas now we're looking at a prolonged economic crisis. But the point I think I'd like to draw out here is that this was part of the development of what was called the Cold War, between the capitalist nations largely aligned with US imperialism and the planned economies, bureaucratically planned economies, as you've pointed out, which were largely aligned with the Soviet Union at the time. Could this rivalry between the US and China lead to military conflict, do you think? Well, (laughs) that's an important question, whether it can lead to military conflict. I mean, I could go back into the differences between the Cold War of the post-Second World War period, or even before that, but the Cold War between countries which had different social systems as well as political systems, you know, they were based on public ownership or state ownership and paid allegiance to the ideas of communism, although what they carried out was Stalinist dictatorship. There was an ideological difference between these two blocks in the world and obviously the Marshall Plan was built up with the aim of defending the capitalist economies against any encroachment from other kind of systems and also preventing revolution at home because workers who'd been workers in uniform came home and wanted to change the society that they're living in. I think like a lot of people will want to after this particular crisis with the virus. So that was a very special, particular form of Cold War. There was a reason why it didn't develop into a hot war, mainly because there were nuclear arms on both sides, and there still are. There's massive, obviously much bigger each year. They're getting bigger. They're talking about increasing them in China and in the US now, their possession of ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons, in spite of the fact that it's generally felt that this mutually assured destruction, which is mad in short, 
it would be mad if anybody let off a nuclear weapon and there was retaliation, the whole world would be finished. So it does stay the hand of even the craziest of presidents of countries. So we don't think that there could, well, I think most people are agreed, there would not be a nuclear war coming out of this. But because it's a war for markets, there's really increasing rivalry. Because China has become a bigger, a much bigger power on the world arena, economically and military, it is a real threat to the U.S. and the U.S.'s interests, especially in its backyard in Asia, in the South China Sea and around in these areas. And I'll just quote to you a statement that the Committee for Workers International has recently published on the website, and it says, In the South China Sea, military tensions have escalated, although not to the point of open conflict at this stage. China has occupied and fortified disputed shoals and reefs. Its naval manoeuvres have increased, as have the US and Australian naval presences in the area. China has also been testing Taiwan's defences with aerial sorties, and in March undertook its first nighttime exercise. Neither China nor the US is looking for war at this stage, but accidental flare-ups and exchanges cannot be ruled out. This would clearly further dramatically heighten the tensions between the two major powers. So there is a lot of talk of Cold War now, and in a sense there is a Cold War. It's not, you know, we don't imagine that it's going to develop into a nuclear fighting war and if it breaks out into any kind of fighting war in the South Asia area there will be huge efforts to prevent it from escalating but the tensions are so high so it's not just tensions with other nation states and competing capitalist powers which are beleaguering China at the moment but there are also major tensions within China. And in particular, the world has been watching the long flare-up between pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong and the Chinese bureaucracy. So how has that developed? Well, there has been a new flare-up which has hit the headlines in the last few days because on the eve of the People's Congress in China, uh, Xi Jinping announced that they were going to be introducing a new security law, which was really interpreted as wiping out the agreement of one nation, two systems, which was the agreement when Britain left Hong Kong in 1997, it was. And so there was an outburst of protest on the streets of Hong Kong against that. And it must be a very stormy place to be, Hong Kong, actually, because about this time last year, a movement began demanding basic democratic rights with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, up to a million people coming onto the streets regularly, you know, locking into battles with the police, armed with all sorts of, I mean, water cannon, actually firearms at one stage, batons, shields. You know, it got very, very heated. One important measure that Beijing wanted to impose was withdrawn. I mean, I've seen it mentioned recently that it was suspended, but actually they took it off the statute books. But there are the other demands for things like universal suffrage and independent tribunals to deal with what's happening with relations between demonstrators and the state, 
which they were still fighting for, and they were extremely courageous. They were really risking their lives. Young people, I think it's only one person died, which is amazing, given the clashes that took place. They occupied the universities and were hounded out of the universities. Many people were hospitalized, many were arrested. And then came the coronavirus and the lockdown, which cut across a few movements around the world, actually, but notably, as we're talking about it, in Hong Kong. And it had just started up again as the lockdown measures were being lifted in Hong Kong. So there were youth coming on the streets again, singing their hymns of struggle and making their demands for real democracy in Hong Kong. I mean, we say that they should be taking the movement further. If you're prepared to fight like that and make the sacrifices, possibly even the ultimate sacrifice, because young people had their wills in their pockets, they were prepared to go to their deaths in these battles. If you're going to battle that determinedly, then why not battle for a different social system, you know, for workers' democracy, for socialism, and link it up with workers in mainland China to conduct a struggle against the bureaucracy, the ruling party there for workers' democracy and socialism. That's what we said during the course of the battles last year, and it's what we still say. But what happened at the weekend was this flare-up of demonstrations. They didn't take any notice of the social distancing rules and so on, but tens of thousands came onto the streets because there was talk about bringing intelligence services and actually using the army, the Beijing-operated army, to use that in Hong Kong to suppress the demands of the pro-democracy movement there. There are soldiers and police who come under Beijing's authority actually stationed in Hong Kong, but they've stayed in the barracks. This is a threat to use them to try and crush the movement. I have the feeling that it was another part of this sort of Cold War or building up the tensions between the big powers because there's a very special relationship between the US and Hong Kong and between China and Hong Kong. They both need it as a sort of hub for commercial and particularly banking and insurance transactions. I don't think either side wants to see those completely crushed you know, and endangered by the movement for democracy or by the moving of heavily armed troops into Hong Kong, like those that were moved in and crushed and killed the demonstrators in Tiananmen. So you mentioned the need to link up the movement in Hong Kong with workers in mainland China. Now, of course, China has an extraordinarily repressive regime, which I think a lot of people would assume means that it fears that it doesn't have a great deal of support in the population. There were years of growth, which meant that there were winners in China, not just the billionaires, which we've talked about, but also the development of a middle class, a certain mass layer in society which has seen its living standards improve. There's also tens of millions of members of the Chinese Communist Party. Many of those, but not all of them, will be officials who enjoy certain privileges. What indications are there that workers in mainland China oppose Xi's regime? Well, that is a question of questions. It's very difficult because obviously the regime has control over the press, over the media, but it also has ways of clamping down on any opposition, not just on the streets with the armed bodies of men and women, probably, but on the internet, on, you know, there are netizens, which I think are people who try and express their opposition 
over the internet, but even they can get tracked down and arrested. There are areas of China where there are very aggrieved sections of the population who belong to a, an oppressed minority, as, for example, in Xinjiang, where there are a million Muslim Uyghurs who are virtually in a prison camp in their own province, really, where they live, and have been used doing the galley slave labour during this coronavirus epidemic, you know, whose lives mean nothing to the rulers in Beijing. And I just imagine that the anger must be really boiling up amongst those people and amongst other layers in society who are getting pushed around and being pushed around in work, as we discussed right at the beginning of this interview, who are looking for a way of expressing their anger and organising. I'm sure they talk about it, but to actually do it is extremely difficult. There are many political prisoners and there are others who actually have lost their lives through being persecuted for their opposition. So really the way for a movement to gather momentum and gather strength is for it to start amongst the workers in the big workplaces and to link up with workers elsewhere and with the poor workers in the countryside because, as you said, living standards have generally risen very rapidly because of the rapid growth in the economy and a deliberate policy to try and make people feel they're living a bit better and they like the regime and so on. But there's still a vast peasantry in China who live very poverty-stricken lives and who would back up a movement of the working class once it gets going. In relation to Hong Kong, there's a small item in today's eye where it talks about big brother surveillance in China and it says that of course the regime is using the coronavirus epidemic and the need to track and trace we're all a bit worried about that tracking and tracing but in China they're getting it off to a fine art they're trying to build one of the world's most sophisticated surveillance technology networks with hundreds of millions of cameras in public places an increasing use of techniques such as smartphone monitoring and facial recognition. So obviously they're nervous not only in relation to the virus, but in relation to increasing discontent and opposition that can grow, that can explode from below in China. It would probably be an explosion because the lid is held on so tight and there's no way for people to express their opposition through elections. They can go on demonstrations about the environment, which they have done, but they get clobbered by the state forces and have to retreat. But we know there have been strikes, even strikes across different cities, not just in one area, although they tend to be localised. But there was a strike of crane drivers recently on May Day, I think two years ago, across 10 or 12 different cities in China, so they are able to communicate and they can plot and plan and hopefully there's a lot more of that going on than we actually know about. So it's a cliche but it is reminiscent of what George Orwell writes about in 1984. Of course that work of fiction was somewhat pessimistic about the willingness and ability of workers to recognise their conditions and to fight to overthrow the system. But you think there can be an explosion of anger in mainland China as well as in Hong Kong? I do. And it would be an almighty movement, almighty explosion, and it would just have fantastic international repercussions. I mean, not only 
on relations with the U.S. and maybe spark a lot of ideas. There's an interest in socialism in the U.S. already, but the workers in China moving to throw off this bureaucracy that leeches off their backs would be an event that would really shake the world. It would shake Asia, you know, the neighbours in Asia, but it would shake the world in a way that no other movement has done, I should say, since the Russian Revolution, the 10 days that shook the world. So I suppose the natural question following on from that is, what does the Committee for a Workers' International say is needed in China? Well, in the past, the Committee for a Workers' International would have been advocating, as we did in the Stalinist Soviet Union, a political revolution to throw off the bureaucracy and for workers to take control, to take over the factories, the offices, the banks, and to run them on the basis of democratically elected workers' committees, to link up the committees on a city and a regional, provincial and national scale, which is massive, of course, in China. But we would advocate that as being genuine workers' democracy, and it needs a programme. I mean, it needs to convince the workers and the people that you want to build the party that that is a viable alternative. And you have to look at history, you have to look at what's gone wrong, and you have to look at all the crimes that capitalism is perpetuating these days to convince people they need a party like that. But once they've got a party, a small party can grow very rapidly if it puts forward the need to throw off the capitalist class and to carry through a social revolution. The first demand is for democracy. I mean, we would say democratic rights are an ABC in any country, in any capitalist country, and including in China. But you need to build a party which takes the struggle further than just a struggle for democratic rights, as we've said in relation to Hong Kong. You know, a struggle for taking over the commanding heights of the economy, the banks insurance companies, the massive manufacturing companies, including in China, huge factories which have been set up by foreign companies, in fact, and then, you know, lead on to the struggle to take political power. With that in mind, the centenary of the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party, and it was founded as a genuine revolutionary party in 1921, that centenary is coming up next year. Are there lessons to be drawn from that, do you think? Well, yes. I mean, again, it's hypocritical of the present regime in China to be looking to that as something to celebrate because they're not communists, as we've discussed earlier. But they're still trying to rule in the name of the Communist Party, and this is supposed to be a big anniversary, when they were aiming to have doubled the size of the Chinese economy in 10 years, from 2010 to 2020. They looked as if they were on the way with big growth rates, but now obviously it's been set back. They could recover, maybe faster than other capitalist countries around the world, but they will be struggling. It reminds us of something which we often talk about in meetings of the Socialist Party, of the CWI, because we know we have small forces, but it indicates that just a couple of dozen people who met in Shanghai in 1921 were able to establish a party which grew and grew and grew. It didn't stick to all the basic sort of Marxist ideas. It certainly didn't adopt the ideas of Trotsky as it developed. But it became a mass party. It was involved in a huge revolutionary movement in the late 20s. 
where the workers' involvement was crushed, and that's another whole history lesson. But then it became the ruling party with all the contradictions that we have now. But the fact that a small force can develop into a mass party is extremely encouraging for us at this particular time because around the world there are massive crises and whole swathes of the working population are trying to draw some conclusions. How could this happen? Not how did the virus start and blaming China or whoever else because some Chinese have blamed the US. Not blaming how that started but how this crisis has been dealt with by the ruling layers, by presidents and prime ministers who are thinking only about their future rather than the future of society, how they're really sacrificing the lives and the livelihoods of millions and billions of people around the world. That the conclusions are there. People are striving to draw conclusions. But we as a party and as an international organisation are the people who can really express the unconscious strivings of the working people. We can put it into words. We can mobilize behind programs of demands on the question of work or full pay and nationalize the major monopolies and banks. Other transitional demands, which are not all zooming into my head at the moment, but they're spelt out in the material on the website of the Committee for Workers International, which is socialistworld.net. You know, you can see our ideas there, and we're just hoping through the wonders of technology and the way that people can pick up things on the internet, that it's not only if they see us on the streets, when we can get back on the streets, but if they see our ideas on our websites and in our material, that they'll say, those are the people for us. We want to join, we want to be part of their party, and we know that they've got the policies that can actually transform the world. Thank you very much, Claire. Okay, my pleasure. <laughs> and as ever, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, join the Socialists. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Claire Doyle, and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. What if you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country? Contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time... Solidarity.